right, so the foundation that we established then is simply this, that the entire New Testament is this eschatological thing because the ultimate essence of the eschaton, the end, right, or the kingdom of God, or the last days, and I'm kind of using them interchangeably, uh, is the restoration of God's presence amongst us. Jesus, in his coming, was the beginning of that, the inauguration of the, of the restoration of God's presence among us. Now, here's what I want to do now, and that's this. And, and this is, you're going to kind of think, well, this isn't, it's kind of like a sideline. I'm actually going to argue this is kind of the key. If we get this, then all the eschatological questions we're going to ask, like Armageddon, the rapture, the second coming, etc., they're kind of going to be answered within this framework of understanding that. And so what I want to discuss is the, is the concept of the, of the eschaton, or eschatology, and the temple. Because I would argue, right, and I'm, I don't think David would disagree probably at all, but we haven't, I don't know if we've talked about this or not. I think we have a little bit when we had dinner a couple weeks ago. Um, that the entire biblical story is a story of God, about God's temple. Right? The creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is God creating a temple all right, for him to dwell in. And then the key element in the temple, of course, by the way, is that image. Right? And that's what we are. Humanity, are. We're his image bearers to dwell in his temple presence and radiate that presence to the rest of his creation. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, as I'll point out in a few minutes, they were kicked out of the, out of the temple. They were expelled from the temple. So that's, let me see if I can make this point. All right, the first point, though, is, is this. We have to understand what is the nature and purpose of the temple. All right, so the first point is, is that the temple um, is where God dwells. That's the nature of a temple. It's, it's where God dwells. Right, and the key verse, and make note of this verse here, kind of put some asterisks by it, and later on when you have time, to go through your Bibles, note this verse there, is Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. All right? And it says, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you, and I will, walk, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Okay. Now, Leviticus 26, 11, and 12 is at the climax of, in, in Leviticus versions, of this covenant promise that God makes. Okay? So very briefly here, a covenant is an, abind- is an agreement between two parties, basically between a king and the people. Right? The king promises, I'll be your king and you'll be my people, and here's how it's going to work. You're going to obey my laws, and when you do, I'll bless you. And if a foreign army tries to invade, and you know, you're, I'll protect you, because I'm your king and you'll be my people. Now, if you don't obey my laws... Well, it's going to be a problem for you, right? All right. This is that covenant. All right. And so Leviticus 20, 26 begins with, if you obey my laws, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your fields. I'm going to bless your cattle. I'm going to bless your offspring. I'm going to, I'm going to bless all. And it climaxes with, in fact, the, the great part of this covenant is, I will actually dwell among you. If you will be, you'll be my people. And if you be, obey the laws, I will dwell in, in my soul and I will walk among you. And the word walk is the same word used for God walking in the garden in Genesis 3, verse 8. Right? Likely, in fact, you know, the Jewish commentators all agree, and the, the most biblical commentators agree, that this is an allusion to the restoration of Eden. Okay? Uh, so, and I, now I have to make an argument, of course, that the Garden of Eden uh, is indeed a temple. So that's the next point. Okay? So the, the, the Garden of Eden it was a temple. And let me make several points there, and they're on your outline. Number one. Eden was the place of God's presence, right? That's kind of easy. Eden was, Eden was the place of God's presence. We know that's where God dwelt, right? Was in the Garden of Eden. All right, second point was that Eden is referred to as the mountain of God in Ezekiel 28, okay? Now, the significance of that is that all temples are on mountains, right? You always put the temple at the highest point in the city, and you put that highest point in the city, the capital on a mountain. Ezekiel 28, 13 through 16, you were in Eden, the Garden of God, and I placed you there. 
You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. So there's no question. So Now, Genesis doesn't say that Eden's a mountain. There's nothing in the book of Genesis that indicates that Eden was a mountain. The point is, is that the biblical authors all recognize that Eden was, was the place of God's presence and therefore a temple. Therefore, it had to have been on a mountain because all temples are on mountains. And it's just this basic assumed understanding that Ezekiel is, 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 is pouring forth this notion from, that, Ezekiel, that uh, Eden was a temple because it was, it's, it was called the mountain of God. All right, thirdly, Adam is described as a priest in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And the two Hebrew words for cultivate and keep, avad and samar, basically refer to the activities of the priest in the temple. Adam and Eve were acting as priests in guarding and preserving and cultivating and keeping the temple. Okay? That's why, by the way, Adam's sin was so significant. Because the serpent comes in the garden, and Adam is, it's a holy place. If the garden's where God dwells, if it's a temple, then the serpent's not supposed to be in the holy place. All right? So Adam doesn't do his job of guarding or keeping and protecting uh, um, the garden. All right, now, number four. Uh, Eden also appears, and I won't take the time to develop this uh, now, and I do in my book, uh, um, if you, if you want to get it. Uh, it's that uh, Eden was an expanding, earth-filling temple. All right? um, and so you, you, you see this throughout the scriptures, and, and this is going to be important for another reason that, we won't, that I may get into later on, but um, uh, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. You, you've heard these verses before. They, they won't hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the book, from the book of Isaiah. There, there appears to be this understanding in the biblical text that Eden was an expanding, earth-filling temple. And, here, and here's the point behind that. Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth before they were kicked out of the garden. So if Adam and Eve were to dwell in God's presence, right, and Adam and Eve fill the earth, then what does that mean? And it's, it seems to be assumed that, the, that Eden would expand. Right? Now, once Adam and Eve sinned, okay, forget that one, because I'm not going with you. Right? Uh, be, because of their sin, but nonetheless, uh, um, uh, that's kind of the idea. All right, let's move forward now. Uh, oh, the, actually, here you go. I, didn't, I, I can't see the next slide. I didn't realize I had them, but Numbers 14, 21, Isaiah 11, 9. So uh, um, both refer to uh, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. All right. Um, now, uh, next point, I'm going to go over this briefly, but every physical structure limits God's presence to one particular place. Okay? Think about this. We think of the temple and the, the tabernacle of Moses and the Temple of Solomon. And they have a, prob a problem, and that is God's presence is limited to one place. Right? But it appears that the goal of Scripture is for God to dwell throughout all places. Okay? So I'm gonna I'll just reference those there. Uh, 1 Kings 8, 27, Acts 17, 4, uh, 24, and, and Acts 7, verse 8. All right. uh, now, note Ezekiel, the end times temple of Ezekiel 37. Okay? And, and what I want you to note is that Leviticus 26 of 11 and 12 is referenced here. Okay? Remember Le Leviticus 26, 11 and 12? I will walk among you. I'll make my dwelling among you. My soul won't reject you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Ezekiel 37. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. Very similar to Leviticus 26. All right. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers live. 
and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince. Now, Ezekiel 37 is written after the temple is destroyed. Okay? So Ezekiel seems to be describing what we might call the, quote, end times temple. I'm going to put quotes around it, and you'll understand why I'm putting quotes around it right, right now. All right? Because we think of it as something futuristic, and I'm going to argue that's not just something future. All right? And Ezekiel says the fulfillment of this temple, right, the restoration of this temple is going to be, I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. Okay? And, and, and they'll, they'll walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and, and, and whatever, uh, and, and they'll live on this land, they and their sons, forever and forever. Okay. Now, um, I'll make verse 27 and 28. I'll make a covenant of peace with them, and it'll be an everlasting covenant with them, Ezekiel 37, 27. And I will place them and multiply and set my sanctuary in their midst. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they'll be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So here's this end times temple of Ezekiel, and you see now how it's resonating with Leviticus 26, right? Leviticus 26 appears to have this indication that it's a restoration of Eden because God's going to walk in their midst. And the key element of this end times temple is I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay. So here's this end times temple uh, in the book of Leviticus. Okay. Now, one other key element, and this will help us understand the New Testament. It's not vital to to the argument that I'm making. Um, uh, It's relevant though. Is that the restoration of the temple is going to include the nations. Okay. So Moses had a tabernacle, right? Solomon built a temple. That temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, right? right. Ezekiel now and Isaiah now seem to indicate, hey, there's going to be this future restoration of the temple. And the element of it is going to be like Eden, where God walks among among them. And secondly, it's also going to be for the nations. Remember the the tabernacle of Moses and and the temple of Solomon was only for Israel. And even then, it was actually only for the high priest. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, right? All right? Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. All right? Many peoples will come and say, Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So notice the references to mountain, Right? And the house of Jacob, it's a temple. All right? And it has this imagery, by the way, of streams, by the way, flowing uphill. Isn't that beautiful imagery? Because water doesn't flow uphill, but we do, obviously, in the beautiful imagery of Scripture. All right? We also see Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Right? And you might recognize that verse because Jesus quotes it, right? especially in Mark's Gospel, when he overturns the money changers' tables. He says, you have not brought about the fulfillment of what the temple is all about. The temple is supposed to be for the nations too. And you've made a den of robbers. Right? How could you do this? All right. So here's the first point now, and that's this. All right. um, the, the, in t- as far as the temple is concerned, is that the temple is a place where God dwells. The goal was for God, I'm going to argue, the goal is for God to dwell amongst all humanity throughout the entirety of the earth. We have a little bit of an indication that maybe Eden was supposed to be this expanding temple that was going to fill the earth, but that's not absolutely clear, certainly not from the Old Testament there. That's why I had a question mark on number four. Is Eden this earth expanding, this expanding temple that fills the entirety of the earth? But the key element, again, is that it's where God dwells, and then he wants to dwell among all peoples. Okay. So let's go a little bit further now. And, and the next point is Jesus is the fulfillment uh, of, the, the, of the prophecies regarding the temple. 
Okay? Um, and this is an easy one, because it doesn't matter what your view of eschatology, or we all agree on this one, right? Jesus, the temple's fulfilled in Jesus. There's just no questions here. All right. John 2, 19-21, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Right? And it goes on to say, after he rose from the dead, we remembered what he was talking about, right? We, we didn't, when he said this, we didn't even understand it ourselves. But after the Pentecost, I think it's after Pentecost, by the way, right? After Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, then we understood that, that the, the temple he was speaking of was his body. All right. One of the questions I like to ask is like, well, okay, we all agree with that, but what is it supposed to mean? I mean, it, it kind of becomes empty. If, if we don't understand the significance of the temple as the place where God dwells, right? The nature and purpose of the temple is where God dwells, right? Then we kind of, pass this one by. Right? In fact, there's a lot of theology out there about the idea that there's going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem someday. And we kind of get excited about when that temple gets rebuilt, maybe, maybe Jesus coming back will be nearer and nearer and nearer. Well, I'm going to suggest that when we think that way, we're radically misunderstanding what Jesus was talking about. We're missing something. The temple's fulfilled in Jesus. I am the temple of God. Now let's go a little bit further. The Gospel of Matthew, remember what I said about inclusio? An author will frame, will begin and end, end, end something? Well, remember the first 17 verses of Matthew are genealogy. So the first story in genealogy is Joseph and Mary. Right? An angel appears to Joseph, says, hey, don't worry about it. You know, she's with child, but it ain't what you think. Right? The angel, the Holy Spirit's come upon her, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The last verse in the Gospel of Matthew. And lo, I am with you always. Matthew has framed his Gospel, the first story, verses 18 through 25, and the last verse. Both have reference to this Emmanuel. He's God with us. But note that in the resurrection and ascension, he's still God with us. Because he says, I might be taking off, but I'm with you always. Right? How, how do we suppose that Jesus is with us always, today. Any idea? Holy Through the Holy Spirit. Right? And that's clear in the Gospel of John, right? It's for your good that I go, because if I go, I, I'll send you the Spirit, and He'll be with you always. But notice Jesus in Matthew's Gospel says, I'll be with you always. All right, so the point then is, is that, um, make sure I'm following on my now. All right, next, the next uh, bullet point uh, says that the coming of Jesus is in the context of the long-awaited return of God to his people. So Malachi 3.1, remember that verse? John the Baptist quoted it in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He, he says it's the book of Isaiah, but he's also got in there a quote from Exodus 23 in Malachi 3.1. Here's what Malachi 3.1 says. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he'll clear the way before me. Right? So that's John the Baptist. You see why John, right? I, I'm the one who's preparing the way for the one who's to come. And then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. It's not just Jesus coming back to the land. It's Jesus coming back to the temple. Okay. Now, if we had time, and I'd love to do it, we'd look at the Gospel of Mark and see how Mark climaxes in Mark chapter 11 with Jesus coming into the temple. All right. All right. But note also now John chapter 1, verse 14. And we beheld or we saw his glory. The word glory there is a reference to the presence of God in the temple. 
Remember the Temple of Solomon? Only the high priest could see the presence of God in the temple and only the high priest one time a year, right? Familiar with that? So only the high priest could see it and only once a year. But because Jesus is the Lord coming back to the land, he's God restoring his presence to his people. John says, we all saw it. We beheld, and by the way, earlier in the verse it says that uh, um, uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word for tabernacle is the same word used for the tabernacle of Moses in the Old Testament. So the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. It's this temple reference there. It's, it's Jesus is the temple presence of God. He's not just the building. He's the temple presence of God among us. Remember, the key element of the temple is that it's the presence of God amongst his people. All right, so, the, so, so underneath that then, the point is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the very purpose of the temple. Okay? And we see this in a number of places, but I'm just going to reference you one. All right, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. Paul, and he's referring to the Gentiles. So then you are no longer strangers, you Gentiles. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the Jewish Christians, with the saints. And you're of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which means we have a temple imagery here. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Jews and Gentiles are combined together into this temple, the cornerstone of the temple, which is the first stone laid in the construction of a building, is Jesus. The rest of the foundation, the apostles and prophets, and the rest of us, were the rest of the building. And the building is what? It's the temple. Okay? So Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies regarding the temple. Remember, he's the fulfillment of the very purpose of the temple. Okay, now this leads us to the next point. And the next point is the fact that the people of God, us, right, are also the temple of God. Okay? So let me give you several references, and a couple of these will be important, so I'll, and I'll reference them. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 17, and I'm going to go back to chapter 3 in a minute. It says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Okay? Remember, the subtitle is, Why Does This Matter? All right? That's the reason why we'll come back to it. All right? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You are the temple of God. Now watch this one. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Just as God said... I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Right? Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, I think it's verse 14, says you are the temple of God and you can't defy the temple by, uh, with, with, with demons. Right? What, what, what fellowship does light have with darkness, with, with, with Christ, with Belial? Uh, and then he says, and just as God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. That's Leviticus 26 and Ezekiel 37. Leviticus 26 is the covenant promise to God. If you be my people and you obey the law, I'll dwell among you. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And I'll walk among you, which is this Eden language. Ezekiel picks it up after the temple is destroyed and says, don't worry about it. God's going to rebuild this temple. And when he does, it'll fulfill Leviticus. Okay? 
Does that, does that, does that make sense? Eden's a temple. The temple's where God dwells. But Adam and Eve were kicked out of the temple. God makes a covenant with Israel and says, Leviticus 26, I'll walk among you again. I'm going to restore you to my temple presence. We think that's what the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon was about. What I glossed over kind of quickly, just for time's sake tonight, was a physical building, whether it's a tent or a building, can't actually be the place of God's presence long term because it restricts God's presence to one place and one person. And God wants to dwell everywhere. The whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord and amongst all people. The fulfillment of that begins with Jesus because guess what? We, not one person, we, plural, we beheld his glory. So all of a sudden now, the purpose of the temple, God dwelling among his people, is beginning to find a fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, not in the building. Remember, two of the verses I quickly glossed over there on, on God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands, that's from Acts. Stephen says it in his sermon to the Jews in, in Acts 7, and Paul says it in Acts 17 when he's on, on Mars Hill. God doesn't dwell in buildings made by human hands. Right? The other reference was from Solomon saying, when he dedicated the temple, it says, who can, what house can contain you, God? I can build a house, but it really, it really can't contain. This can't suffice. This can't be the answer. Jesus comes then and says, I'm the temple of God, because he's God amongst us, and more than one person is beholding his presence. Then Paul goes on to say, we are the temple presence of God. All right, now watch this verse. 1 Corinthians 3. Remember right? we quoted verse Corinthians 3 in the previous slide, verse 17, right? Don't you know that you're the temple of God? All right, now watch this one. 1 Corinthians 3, a little earlier in the verse. The, the church is really divided in, in Corinth, if you don't know how bad the church in Corinth was uh, there. But Paul says, I planted an Apollos, which we think is the pastor of the church. He watered. Okay. Now that's imagery of what? What's, what kind of imagery is that? I planted, Apollos watered. What kind of imagery is, are we, is Paul like using farming, here? Farming, agricultural, gardening. right? Gardening. It's a garden. I was thinking of like, just like the parables of the sowing. Exactly, parable of the sower. Excellent. All right. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's workers, you are God's field, God's building. Notice he just combined garden with a building. Remember? The Garden of Eden was, re was, fulfilled tempor was replaced temporarily with a building. But now the ultimate building is what? Us. You guys, Paul says. I, and and a couple of verses later, he's going to say, you are the temple of God. Right? We just quoted that verse. Okay. So he's using garden imagery, Eden imagery, and associating it with the temple imagery. Okay? So the point is what? The temple is finding its fulfillment, its very purpose in Jesus and now through the Spirit's presence in us as well. So now guess what? If the temple was supposed to be amongst all people and in all places, but Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple really only temporarily suffice because it's only amongst one people and really only amongst one person. And God's presence is limited to that one place. But in Jesus, it's still limited to one place, wherever Jesus was. But more than one person is beginning to experience God's presence. We beheld his glory. But now, through the Spirit, God's presence is no longer in one place. It's wherever we all go, right? It's beginning to fill the earth, isn't it? 
And more than one person is experiencing God's presence, even more so than with just with Jesus. That's why he says, it's for your good that I go. Because when I go, I'll send you the Spirit. And he'll be with you always. See, with Jesus, we were only in the presence of God when we were with Jesus. Now with the Spirit, we're in the presence of God always because God's presence is within us. Okay. Now the next point then is this. Is, um, uh, let's see here. The uh, fulfillment, uh, we're on the, yeah, on the back, back side, right? Uh, of your house. All right. The New Jerusalem as the temple. Okay. Now we quoted Revelation 21 earlier, but let's look at it again and we're going to add verse 7 in this time. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he who overcomes, verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Note, Revelation is quoting Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, and Ezekiel 37, 26, and 27. Okay? In other words, the ultimate fulfillment is the New Jerusalem. And what do you see in the New Jerusalem? It comes down out of heaven, and it fills the earth. And it's the place where God dwells. That's what the New Jerusalem is by its very definition, right? Its very essence is, I will be your God and you'll be my people, all right? And I will dwell among them. The tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them, okay? So the ultimate fulfillment, in other words, is the coming of the New Jerusalem, okay? And the New Jerusalem, if we had some time, we would discuss this in a little bit more detail, fills, I believe it fills the entirety of the earth. We discussed this a little bit, David, I think at dinner a couple, a couple about a month ago. Uh, I'm there. Uh, and, and there's numerous references there. Now, by the way, if, if we were to keep reading Revelation 21, you'll notice um, John, uh, in verse 10 it says, Then he took me to a mountain, and he showed me the holy city. Notice it's a mountain where he's seeing the holy city, right? Um, it's clearly a holy place because nothing unclean is allowed to enter this city in 21 verse 27. Um, the dimensions of the, uh, of the New Jerusalem, are, are anyone familiar? What's, what are the dimensions of the New Jerusalem? It's 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. All right, that's 21 verse 16. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament tabernacle, the, the temple that Solomon built, even the tabernacle of Moses, all right, the holy, it had a holy of holies and had a holy place. Okay, right? Can I run on the board? All right, so... I almost need to take my phone with me because if you're listening on, on this, you're not going to hear it. All right. So, the, the, um, the holy place... Oh, I can't run on the board because the pen doesn't work. All right, never mind. All right. So, uh, simply put, here's the deal. The holy place, the dimensions were twice as long as it was wide. But the holy of holies is the same length, width, and height. Ten by ten by ten. Okay? What's the significance then? If the New Jerusalem... Same length, width, and height. The entire city is the Holy of Holies. It's a temple, and we all dwell within it. So my point would be this, uh, and we'll, we'll take a, a, a brief break here. That's right. It's okay, David. Right. Um, would be that the temple finds its fulfillment beginning in Jesus. All the promises of the temple find their fulfillment in Jesus. He's the temple of God in light of what God promised he would bring the prophets after the temple of Solomon was destroyed. The, the fulfillment, however, continues by the Spirit dwelling within us and then climaxes in the New Jerusalem. Okay? 
There are no prophecies about a temple then, eschatology now, that need to be fulfilled. Because they're all being fulfilled or have been fulfilled in Jesus and through the church. That's why Paul's quoting these key prominent passages and then ultimately uh, in the New Jerusalem. Let's stop there for any questions and take a brief break. How's that? Any questions or thoughts here? That's a lot. That's a lot. I, I told you, I'm going to overwhelm you. Uh, and that, that's part of the goal. But, we'll, but, we'll, but now, from, now from this foundation, we'll, I'll keep repeating myself and we'll kind of build upon this and we, I think we can begin to answer some, some of the key questions. All right? Yes? The New Jerusalem. Yes. The, that is a place or a people or... Oh, great question. Because if... Yes. Okay, can you explain? I can. The answer is Yes. All right, the question was, if it, all right, is the New Jerusalem, is that a people or a place? And the answer is yes. Okay. Think about this. The temple of Jesus, a person or a place? Both. The New Jerusalem, people or a place? Okay. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation 21, uh, verses 8 and 9. I don't have a slide for it, of course. 8 and 9? Yeah, Revelation, Revelation 21. I, I believe it's verses 8 and 9, yeah. It says, uh, uh, verse 9. Uh, oops. Right. Uh, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls for the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's verse 9, so it's 9 and 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city. What did he say he was going to show him? I'm going to show you the bride. What did he show him? The holy city. A city. The bride is the city. Right? The bride is the city. Right? Um, so, very, very common imagery there in the book of Revelation. So, um, all right? Which, by the way, it's like, well, no, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yes, Jesus is the temple. Right? In fact, I would say, if anyone wants to argue that there's going to be a temple rebuilt someday in, in Jerusalem, then you don't have a high enough view of Jesus. And I don't mean that like totally pejoratively there, and it could be taken in the wrong way. But what I'm saying is, you're missing the significance of what Jesus says. All right? Um, there, and and uh, we can go a lot further with, with some of that. But any questions on that? Any, any other? I mean, yeah, there's a lot, huh? There's a lot. All right. I'm trying to wrap it up. That, that's good. Okay, good. We'll keep processing. All right, let's take a quick break.